Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Tom Burkhardt is an artist based out of New York City. He received his BFA from SUNY Purchase and also attended the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in Maine. His numerous solo exhibits include City Slang at Gregory Lind in San Francisco, Full Stop at the Knoxville Art Museum and the Hudson River Museum, Pretty Little Liars at Tibor Deneige Gallery, among many others. He's been included in group shows at Stephen Harvey, Brian Morris, Stephen Zavitas, D.C. Moore, Karen Golden, and also in museum shows at the National Academy, the McNay Art Museum, and the Islip Art Museum, to name a few. His work has been covered in numerous publications and sites, including the New York Times, Art in America, Art News, the Brooklyn Rail, Art Forum, and the Village Voice. He's received a Joan Mitchell Foundation grant, a Guggenheim grant, a Paula Krasner grant, and a NIFA grant, among others. I met Tom at a studio of over 20 years in the East Village in Manhattan, and we talked about his youth as the child of accomplished artists, Indonesian percussion, passing on grad school, and his life as a working artist. Here's our conversation. it would be interesting to start about uh, talking about where you grew up Mm -hmm. and what part of the like yeah what area right well I'm a New York City kid and the kid of two artists so my mom is Yvonne Jaquette Mm -hmm. painter my dad is Rudy Burkhart who was a filmmaker photographer um, painter Mm -hmm. and so I guess I grew up in like that like a bohemian class in a way Um, and First, we lived on 29th Street and 6th Avenue in a loft, and then we moved to 13th, uh, no, 14th Street and um, about 3rd Avenue up above this movie theater, mm-hmm. and that was like 1970, so that was a pretty intense time in New York City and the Lower East Side right then, and there was a lot of like, um, like intense stuff for a kid, but as a kid, you just process it. It's not like, it doesn't like um, weigh heavily on you it's like you learn certain kind of street skills or whatever very intuitively like you would if you grew up in the country you'd know not to step over a log in case of snakes on the other side or whatever yeah yeah. so you learn these things about how you walk down the street and you say okay that guy's on the nod and he's kind of leaning left Mm -hmm. so I'll just tack right you know or things like that that you just kind of is not traumatic in any way right if you describe them they sound kind of like horrible like you're growing up in a you know, deprived war zone or something like that. But it's just kind of normal stuff. And I think actually that makes it very tolerable for me to live in New York. Um, Not because that that's the situation anymore, but that New York always is an anxiety provoker on some scale for people. And I think that, um, I think somehow growing up here has probably made that less, you know, uh, you just look, a, you're less sensitive. To yeah, it? you're less sensitive to kind of um, the extremes of New York. Yeah. sometimes in a way. Um, so we lived there till about 1977 or so, and then my folks moved to another loft on 29th Street, right near where they used to live, mm-hmm. and that's where my mom still lives. Um, so I kind of grew up as a kid amongst a lot of artist kids. Yeah. Um, you know, although there's this kind of a bit of a myth that like artists of that generation didn't have kids, mm-hmm. like well maybe the men did, but the women supposedly didn't. Right, That's right. not. I didn't find that to be true at all. Like, so Bob and Sylvia Mangold, their kid was a friend of mine, mm-hmm. or Lucy Lippard and Bob Ryman, uh, their son was a friend of mine. Um, Alex Katz and Ada, their son, those are kind of like the people I hung out with. Yeah. And we, I remember we'd go to like openings in Soho and. Um, it was deserted on the streets, mm-hmm. so there would be all those loading docks with pipes, so we'd be kind of, you know, Playing. have some sort of weird precursor to parkour, right. where we, you know, <laughs> flip over the pipes and stuff like that, do that for half an hour, and then go back into the opening and tug on our parents' you know, shirts and say, can we go now? Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, we hated it in right. a way, yeah. um, but I guess I absorbed it all, you know. Yeah. Did you go to public school? I went to public school for high school, to music and art, which is now LaGuardia, Right. for art. How was that? Well, uh, 
It was great. Yeah. It was great. I mean, high school is always kind of horrible. Right. In a way, even if it's okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I I liked it a lot, and I, I think what it is is that I had the I didn't feel like I had a lot of social currency per, perhaps mm-hmm. before, but there, even though it is a bunch a bunch of artists, I had art art artistic currency. Yeah. So like I remember people would ask me to do stuff, and I felt you know had some self worth <laughs> because yeah. of things like that. Um, and that was also the kind of whole second half of the punk scene. So there was all these musicians, and we were all in bands, and we would all. So I was designing posters mm-hmm. for people and stuff like that. So there was this whole kind of high school band scene then that I was part of that kind of gave me a some sort of identity. Did you play music artist. at all? Yeah, yeah. I was in. A, I was a drummer in a kind of silly band. When know, did you start school. playing drums? I I never had a lesson. I had one lesson from. Ethan Ryman, who's who I mentioned before, um, he showed me a paradiddle, and that was about it. Yeah. And then I, um, I had this friend who was starting a band and said, "Well, why don't you play drums?" So I got a set of secondhand drums and just kind of started. And still, don't think I'm really any good. But where did you guys practice? We practiced in West Beth, in the basement of West Beth. Uh-huh. There was practice spaces down there, or. Sometimes in my mom had a studio at one point. We'd kind of set up there for a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and the places we would play was there was this place called Studio 10, which was right near CBGB's, and it was a yippie club. Mm-hmm. Um, and our whole high school, all the bands would kind of book themselves there the same night so we could kind of take it over. Yeah. And then there'd be like six or seven of our friends, bands playing. Bring your own crowd. Sort Bring of. our own yeah. crowd and we'd p- fill it out so they were cool and right. then every third band we'd have to listen to some kind of, you know, rambling lecture about legalizing pot and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> Just like, oh, you old farts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. so when you were in high school and you were playing music, mm-hmm. were you doing art? I mean... Yeah. Well, a- I was doing art as part of my curriculum, actually. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, like, the first art that I really did was... And I wonder why why am I an artist? Because um, I don't know if it's, if it's that I have some sort of genes from artist parents. It seemed to me like it's more like that when you're really little and you're an only child, like mm-hmm. I am. I have a half brother, but when you're an only child, you're kind of like you just get stuff to get. You get given stuff to do, and your parents had these art supplies, and so it kind of felt like it was almost because of that somehow. Yeah, and. Um, so, you know, like when I was, you know, younger, I would make a lot of scale models of stuff. I did a lot of comic book stuff mm-hmm. and cartooning and things like that. Um, and then... They didn't push it on you, though. No, not at like all. Like growing up. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. But you just saw it from a distance. Yeah, I guess it's by example. Yeah. It's like you see it, um, just you just absorb it. It's It seems like a reasonably good thing to do. Yeah. You don't get that message from your parents like, well, this is okay for now but you know you're gonna have to think about a real career my parents had no right to say that to me they actually did it I mean you were seeing you know a real sort of professional practice in a way yeah yeah definitely and when I got to college that was hugely important to kind of have had the experience of knowing what in my mind being an artist meant which was actually kind of working hard yeah it wasn't you know, being on the this is the '80s. It wasn't being on the cover with a big cigar mm-hmm. of you know art news or something like that. That was like the kind of the that was the mediated way that other art students were thinking about what art was. Right. right. That's what they had. They didn't have the internet. You know. Yeah. And so that was one of their examples. And I was like, ah, oh, I, I don't recognize that so much as, yeah. as the art world I know. Yeah, you got a, you you saw a different side of it. Even today, I think there's so many students who have no real idea of the professional side of it or like the yeah. career side of it you know it just seems like a lot of people in school think oh well you know I can't my parents are telling me this isn't a viable mm-hmm. profession there's not a whole lot of sort of like curricular examples right. of like how you go and do this right. for a living but you were living in it yeah but then I feel like a lot of maybe this is a stereotype I feel like a lot of kids of artists go on to do creative things but not art that's so true. Music is like a bit. I feel like yeah. a lot of like painter or sculptor kids mm-hmm. go on to play music, maybe because it's a parallel, but it's not yeah. the same thing mom and dad did. Right. Yeah. And I've also seen a lot of those artist kids kind of resist it for quite a while because I don't know, think it's 
rebelling against their parents, but it's just kind of trying to set your own path in a way. Right. And then you check in with them 20 years later, and they're kind of doing art again. Yeah. Like I mentioned him before, Ethan Ryman. He was like, he had this long career doing hip hop music production and yeah. stuff like that, and now he's an artist. After, yeah. You know, right. once he's like 45 or so. You try to get away from it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, there were a lot of that. You know, this being like the 60s and 70s, the whole kind of moral question of how you parent mm-hmm. was really up in the air yeah. in a lot of ways and there was a lot of bad examples for sure right you know I knew I knew people that kind of had that kind of um, very selfish solipsistic position of the parents yeah it, it, being an artist meant like really disregarding some of those it meant being something other than the so-called straight world and sometimes those other you know good sense about how you relate to people got thrown out with that as well sometimes yeah, I think definitely. so but I had you know really terrific childhood in a lot of right. ways um, well do uh, you think part of that I mean because since your mother is a you know mm-hmm. a well known painter and an accomplished painter do you think part of that is housed in that as well because I feel like a lot of I would imagine in that generation a lot of the male painting artists had this like ego or mm-hmm. there, there was more about like I'm doing my thing in, in the same way, reflecting like culture, where the male, you know, the man goes out and works, and mm-hmm. like you know, yeah. in the '60s house or mm-hmm. whatever, and then the woman mm-hmm. is more of the caretaker or whatever. I think that's nowadays, even though maybe it's not talked about as much as it is, you know, as it's happening, the men are more involved with yeah. raising There's children. A lot more parity, There's sure. a lot more of like a group household, even in, in mm-hmm. and I think the ego has been sort of taken out a little bit mm-hmm. of the the successful or the hardworking artist. You know what I mean? It's like it's yeah. less of the the Jeff Koons, like mm-hmm. I am like this artist, and it's more of like, hey, I'm making art here. I'm trying right. to make a living. Yeah, yeah. Certainly you know the I mean? people I feel like I know are are not, I mean, there are much more kind of, there is a lot of parity between, you know, them. I mean, now we know all these artists' parents. Right. Because we are, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely changed a lot. I, I've I've asked my mom a lot about like recently about like what what was it like for her, kind of in that era mm-hmm. being an artist because there really were very few well known female artists yeah. and sometimes they had to kind of do this thing that was a little bit maybe almost anti feminist like someone like Helen Frankenthaler who mm-hmm. kind of really rejected that label and it's kind of like that you have to kind of be like a a dude one of the guys somehow yeah Yeah, whatever that meant it didn't you know maybe it's the scale or the ambition but it's also kind of like with kind of that you know laser focus somehow in a way that 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 was perceived as being very male or something like that and um so she she said she her and a couple of friends tried to organize some shows amongst themselves and take it to a gallery Mm -hmm. so there was like four women she put together the show and the gallery says hmm pretty good but maybe you could put a man in there you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. that's why I'm dying to talk to Joe Bear because I think she mm-hmm. was so amazing. Yeah, you would see these um, old postcards from these shows, and it's all these minimal artists, all men, and right. then it was like Joe Bear in yeah. there. And I can't imagine what it must have been like at that point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To mm-hmm. be making work in that environment. You yeah. Know? And I wonder about how strong that like just one of the guys. Mm-hmm thing had to be for you to be part of that group or to be accepted yeah, into yeah. it? From, I mean, for me, perceiving it from my position, it didn't seem like as much of a gap Yeah. because I, I didn't know a lot of these women artists mm-hmm. who were moms or whatever or friends of my parents or whatever. There was just as many women as men, so just the perceived thing that I grew up was not that there was really much of a... A, a huge gap there in terms of the, the more professional career side of it I didn't necessarily know about yeah, that but yeah. I saw them being serious about what they did and, and working just as hard you know didn't, right. didn't seem to be a an issue in that yeah, way yeah definitely from my point so okay so you got out of high school I mean did mm-hmm. you think okay I'm going to go to school for art now I want to move to the next stage or what, what was your I guess mindset? it's like I literally don't remember deciding to be an artist I, yeah. it was more like that I would have had to to make a decision would have been to do something different somehow right. because like I said it was such a almost a received option yeah. a family business almost yeah. so um, yeah I guess I I mean I applied to only art school so I guess I had decided to do that you know and um, uh, yeah it seemed like something that I 
could do that I, like I said I think I felt like I had some sort of social currency with that right in high school and that was something that created my identity somehow yeah you know and yeah it's empowering at that stage because really in high school we don't have much you know like you, yeah you cling on to that one thing that sort of sets you apart or that you feel like is something that you can yeah. excel at you know? absolutely yes absolutely um, and whether it seemed like a career idea no I never thought of that at all really I mean, my parents didn't even necessarily have, they had varying degrees of a career out of it. My mm-hmm. mom, maybe when I was in high school, she was more the one that had the stronger career than my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he, there was some times when he had a little bit of weirdness about that, for sure. Yeah. Um, but my dad had this very peculiar attitude, which is, I almost kind of describe it as like, pathological modesty Mm -hmm. and it was a and I'm not I haven't completely unpacked what it was about on one level it's kind of it comes from some sort of a particular background he's from Switzerland and it's you know it it seemed to be kind of like um, gauche to kind of crow about what you do or to promote yourself or something like that so maybe there was part of that that was somewhat cultural cultural. yeah Um, but maybe there was a side about it that was defensive. Mm-hmm. Who knows, you know? Um, and, um, but he made a lot of work and made really interesting work. And a lot of artists' friends uh, thought very, very highly of him. Yeah. And so he was kind of known amongst certain people on, in, to varying degrees in a way. And um, uh, He's a filmmaker, right? He's probably most known for his photographs and then maybe films. Yeah. Yeah. And he made about you know a hundred films in his lifetime. That's that are nothing to sneeze at. No, and they're they're all, they're kind of what kind of films are they? Well, it was like in different eras he was called a different kind of filmmaker. It was like an underground filmmaker, mm-hmm. avant-garde filmmaker, whatever. So it, um, but a lot of what he did was these kind of very I guess I'd call them poetic films in that they're um, he's kind of gathering footage just with his sixteen millimeter camera, no crew or anything like yeah. that just walking around the streets up in Maine in the summers, stuff like that, and then would kind of cut them together. Often they had a kind of a component that was a musical soundtrack mm-hmm. from like some classical or jazz, um, That, but it never illustrated, neither illustrated each other in any strong way. He did a lot of collaborations with poets. That was like a lot of their friends were like the St. Mark's poet people, so Ted Berrigan and... Ann Waldman and Ron Padgett, people like that. Um, so the films are kind of um, kind of assembled in a way in a, in a they're just non-narrative and they might be 20 minutes long or something mm-hmm. like that. They might have some text, maybe not. Um, they're, they're, they, are, they feel kind of like somewhere between still photography and film to right. me in a way. They're like sometimes the images are in a sense, Static, if not literally static, they nothing is happening in a narrative sense. So they're, mm-hmm. so they feel. It was like photographic paintings. Yeah. In a way. Right. Right. Yeah. So did he show those in galleries, or did he show them in galleries and kind of not film festivals, but like places like Anthology Film Archives yeah. and Collective for Living Cinema, and then he would show them in our house and yeah. have a bunch of friends over and kind of get some opinions on it, change it a little bit. Right. Um, it's like who were they? You know, they weren't. They, did, they don't seem to me like he had a super strong idea of these are me being made for an audience. Yeah. You know, they were m- much more personal, so they're like more like a painter's perha- process, perhaps. Mm-hmm. They're s- definitely much more aligned with a painter's world than a filmmaker's world that we might think of, which connects to, like, narrative and Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, when you, um, when you went away to school, did you know immediately that painting was going to be something? No, were? no. In fact... I had a little bit of that anti-painting idea in a way. Uh-huh. Um, I was really interested in like printmaking, and I thought I wanted to be a graphic artist. And then I realized, no, I just like a kind of a graphic image. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of printmaking, and so for the first couple of years, just the very technical aspects of making prints were really fulfilling. Etchings and etchings, silk screens, woodcuts, yeah. everything. Just the kind of problem solving of those things and th- those are very useful when you don't really have a particular idea of what your image is right right it kind of really can keep you busy yeah and um, and at some point 
a couple things happened. One is I, I remember I did what I thought was going to be my last painting. I was in a class with Bob Berlind, who was my, one of my painting teachers. And I was like, okay, this is the last painting of the semester. I'm done with my requirements for painting or something like that. Mm-hmm. I can put it to bed, you know? Right. And I kind of felt like I suddenly got something in it that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the idea of printmaking where all that kind of technical stuff and I didn't feel any need to make a multiple of the image. I didn't need to have 20 of them versus one. Yeah. Um, so something kind of started shifting there. And then I think this is often important in schools is that there's an energy in one department or the other yeah. that shifts around, right? Right. So I feel like right before I got there, um, it was all in photography. Mm-hmm. Jan Groover was the teacher and people like that. Yeah. So that seemed to be where the energy was. In yeah. Photos. So something started happening in painting, not because of any teachers, but um, like my junior year in painting, there seemed to be a group of students that were there that would be like, the fun place to hang out is in the studios. Yeah. And so you're working and you're hanging out and you're collectivizing this kind of energy around something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of seemed to shift there. Yeah. So. Um, I picked up on that and kind of, you know, felt energized by that. And um, uh, I had a great teacher, Nancy Davidson, who was mm-hmm. the new person at school. Like the other people were great, but they were kind of, you know, they were Yaleys and they, mm-hmm. they seemed to kind of have the same perspective to some yeah. extent. And Nancy came in and she was from the Midwest um, and kind of had a different perspective for me. And was so she became like the person that I really felt like I wanted to work with. Right. And this is at SUNY, right? SUNY Purchase, yeah. SUNY Purchase. Yeah, Yeah. SUNY Purchase. So this is like 86 I graduated. Yeah. Um, And I remember having these very strong ideas when I was having my crits that, well, I felt like I could talk pretty well and could kind of satisfy the requirement to so-called defend my work and stuff like that. But there was some of them where I was talking about it and in the back of my brain I was like, you know, all these things I'm saying are nothing I ever think about when I'm making the work. Right. And I was like... Hmm, what's that? What's that about? And it's like, well, that's is that a problem or not? Because you know, trying to put it into language is a useful skill to have. Yeah. But I was like, there seems to be some kind of question about that for me. That what I was um, picking up on the energies, the attitude, or something like that, more behind my painting was nothing kind of that was easily verbalized somehow. Yeah. So I started feeling a little. Um, against kind of language mm-hmm. in, in that last bit there. And then I went to Skowhegan right from there. And so that was like kind of completed some sort of cycle that I was on, which was that my teachers there were like Bill Jensen, yeah. Peter Saul, Judy Pfaff, Judith Shea. Um, and none of them were, well, a lot of them weren't particularly from an academic setting. They weren't like, you know, full-time teachers at such and such a place and then come right. up there for the summer. They were they were less academic people to some extent. I guess Peter was at Austin at the time, but um, I've heard he's not an academic I've, guy. I've heard stories about his teaching. And, yeah, yeah he, was like he was crazy. He was terrific. He was crazy. He was a bomb thrower with, right. without wanting to have any effect on him. Yeah. You like want to throw a grenade in your studio and then close the door before he caught any shit from it. Right, right. Um, and Bill was very kind of almost like a mystical example of something mm-hmm. in a way. And Judy was very, Judy Pfaff was very, very, very useful in terms of very specific things. And so they were, it was a great combination of people. Yeah. And, um, but in terms of where I was at, it was like I did not see the, the kind of, I did not, I did not see grad school coming right up on me basically yeah. and I certainly hadn't applied before I left there so um, I thought maybe I'd do that eventually mm-hmm. um, but that kind of very unacademic untheoretical thing I was kind of on at the end of my undergrad and then Skagegan kind of really put me in a place where it seemed really uninteresting to me to go to grad school at yeah. that point especially because there was a lot of a lot of this frisson between different generations at those grad schools at the time about theory coming in that was the recently graduated people uh, and there was an intergenerational fight going on it seemed to me what year did you finish? this is like 86 86 yeah and 
Um, There's a transition about to happen, but it didn't yeah. happen. Yeah, and so there was conflict of those places between these kind of younger, theory-drenched people and mm-hmm. these kind of old-school, cigar-chomping guys, you know, sleeping with their students and whatever and getting drunk with everybody. And I was like, I don't like either side. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't feel any allegiance to either side. And I had been in school for four-plus years, and I was like, I just want to see what it's like to get out and can I make this without that bubble of motivation that an institution gives you no yeah. matter how subtle you think that is right that is telling you it's okay to make work yeah and there's a reason space. for it and here's a space here's a space <laughs> you're paying money or your parents are paying money so it's kind of gets invaluated invaluated yeah. that way um your peers want to see it you want to please your peers your teachers want to see it. you want to please them it's all kind of wrapped up in this these motivational threads that keep you going yeah perhaps maybe not for everyone but I wanted to see what it was like to kind of be out from under that. Um, and also, because of my background of being raised by artists, mm-hmm. I felt that it had kind of given me some precursor to school yeah. in a way that I didn't feel like I was just getting out of undergrad and like, I'm only getting started. I need to, there's so much more I need to learn in grad school. I kind of suspected that I could probably learn what I needed to on my own prerogative in terms of art yeah. and then if I was going to go to grad school I should go for like anthropology or something right. else yeah. that would, that would, like a discipline I just didn't know about you had such a kind of almost like grad school experience growing up in a way because you're seeing the professional side or the, the sort of what you do when it's all over side of it yeah. a lot of grad school is really about like having a couple more years to really focus right. on your work think a little more about mm-hmm. how you're going to do this, you yeah. know, make connections, yeah. talk to spe- uh, teachers and all that, and visiting artists is a big part of yeah. it, you know. Yeah. But I would say, if I had a nickel for every time, you know, someone told me they went to Skowhegan and talked about how great that experience was in relation to what just came Hell before yeah. it, you know, it's such a really, I mean, I went right after grad school, uh-huh. and it was the perfect counter, yeah. like the grad school chaser. Right. Because it wasn't, you know, whereas grad school was like these like armed discussions and mm-hmm. real you know, pointed. Yeah. yeah. They were just real serious, heavy and not infighting, but kind of like people's perspectives were so informed by their right. own ideologies. Right. And then you go to Skowhegan and everyone's like, Hey man, we're, we're just all, yeah, absolutely. and, uh, this it's is more, great. It's more know? multi-generational. It's more yeah. pan regional. Yeah. It's international. So people are you, there. And I think the important thing about Skowhegan is that in grad schools or any school, you have these academics, we can call them teachers, that are entrenched and there's turf and yes. and things like that that they in some way an ideology that they're mm-hmm. needing to kind of hold on to and when you come to Skowhegan the resident faculty you show up the first day just like you do yeah. there's no there isn't time for it to settle into the hierarchical model right. that these other schools have and then it maybe almost just starts by nine weeks it's over and then a whole new crowd comes the next year yeah um, There's no time for that kind of yeah. alignment of. Also, too, when you're in school and you leave the art building, usually you're next to the engineering building or architecture or something. When you leave your studio at Skowhegan, there's a cow looking at you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's kind of. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's it like puts kind of, things in perspective. That's a, a really uh, useful, interesting yeah. perspective yeah. in relation to sitting in your box and making right. artwork. Yeah, one of the and, jobs was goat monitor. <laughs> Those goats were assholes. <laughs> they would always yell at you and try yeah. to like charge you and stuff. I love that, but I was in one of those studios that was way out, you mm-hmm. know, like the further, I don't know if it's still the same, but it was, mm-hmm. they were way out in yeah. the hill, the furthest one out there. And uh, there would just, I'd open up my door, turn the corner, and there were always three cows just sitting on mm-hmm. that fence there, mm-hmm. like looking at you. Yeah. It was a really great kind of dynamic yeah absolutely and I was working on like images of the city at the time so Uh it was a real weird kind of and I started painting trees you know it just has this effect on everyone everyone does does some sculpture out in the woods or or starts kind of getting all natural somehow yeah but sticking lichen on their paintings exactly and in school you know you're taught everything's so serious I remember at Skowhegan we like I would share electronic music with Tom Friedman Mm -hmm. and he was like into the same stuff I was into Mm -hmm. musically so like that would never happen at school, right? You know, right? It, it was just lines. Yeah. So it was right. a really, I think most people. Have yeah, it's a great model there. for sure. Yeah. Um, There's nothing like it either. Yeah, yeah. And so here's what happened for me from coming from Skowhegan is that I come out of Skowhegan, and 
I felt re-energized by this, not seriousness, but the con conviction of those fellow students there, mm -hmm. compared to your undergrad people, you know, you, you, you know that only a couple of them are going to be making work in 10 years. Right. Right? So the, the level of kind of commitment to it, to being mm -hmm. an artist, is higher. So you're coming out with all these friends and whatever, and um, so many of them were in New York or moving to New York because of the sketching experience in that yeah. community. Um, so I come back to New York after that, um, and because of that community thing, which to me would have been the most important thing about going to grad school, mm -hmm. that was one less reason to go, right? Um, I didn't have any debt. There's another reason not to go. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I moved into this little loft that my father had moved into in 1935 and had the same phone number. And it was like 190 a month because there wasn't even any lease since the 70s. And the place was kind of falling down. But I had this place where I could live alone and have a studio there. It's affordable. Yeah. It was on 21st Street. And, um, and then, so I had, I had, financially, I had the means to make art, so to mm -hmm. speak. And the other thing that was important is that I started working for, at that point, um, a really important person, which was Red Grooms, yeah. who was like a family friend of mine. I mean, a very huge model for me growing up. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started working as a studio assistant for him. Was his studio near where you were? Not super near, like Chinatown, yeah. basically. Um, and um, that was like the most fantastic job ever. Yeah. So I had a job that I loved, that. And one of the things that was so wonderful about it is that he is so generous in general, but kind of creatively, he lets, he let assistants kind of really contribute a lot. Yeah. He was really open to kind of being excited by what people brought to, to his ideas and stuff like that. Were you painting those sculptures? I was painting, yeah. I was sculpting, I was doing all sorts of stuff. And, um, and I did that job for like 27, 28 years. Wow. Um, because it was so wonderful. And yeah. off and on, you know, there'd be right. times where I'd take a long break or whatever. Um, and Another he, job advantage of yeah, a job like that yeah. where you can take time off. Yeah. Right. And, and um, so, that was, so I had this job. Um, and even though that was creatively very satisfying, I found that I could go home at night. And that was four or five days a week usually for, for Red. I could go home at night and still with whatever 20-year-old energy I had, mm -hmm. still find a mental space and energy to make my own work. Yeah. So that's the, that's the important thing, is when that job is like, you know, just grinding you down and exhausting you and mm -hmm. intruding on your mentality and you can't work, that's a good reason to go to grad school, right? Yeah. Right. So, but that wasn't the case with me. So, and then, um, then the last element was that um, with that flexible job I had for him, that paid quite decently. I had a low rent. Um, I would. I started taking a lot of trips, mm -hmm. traveling a lot over to Asia and stuff like that. So um, I could say, Red, I'm gonna take six months off, okay? And he's like, Sure, no problem. You know, <laughs> job will be here when you come back. Yeah. So I'd go and bicycle through China, or um, I stayed. I kept going back and forth to Indonesia a lot, doing music there mm -hmm. uh, in Bali and studying gamelan there and finding teachers there and um, so that felt like another substitute thing from grad schools right. that experience of traveling and how that would kind of um, frame let's say what I'm doing as an artist yeah it's such a huge learning experience right traveling yeah. it's amazing you don't yeah. realize it until you do it no absolutely it's really important um, and that was something I inherited from my folks who both loved to travel and took me on a lot of great trips yeah as a kid a lot, mostly to Europe. So when I started traveling on my own, I was very uninterested in going to Europe. Actually, yeah, I wanted to go to to Burma or Sri Lanka or India yeah. or something like that. Somewhere so new, right? some place that felt as different as possible. Yeah. Um, so wait, you went to Indonesia for percussion? Yeah, yeah. I'd go and study Balinese gamelan there. Yeah. Um, How did you get aware of that? Like, what? What? How did I find out? Um, so. Having kind of been a drummer at some point, yeah. uh, I was always making things. So I was making a lot of kind of peculiar instruments out of stuff, just mm -hmm. learning how to make them, tuning saw blades and making marimbas and stuff like that. So I had an ear for percussive music, let's mm -hmm. say. And I 
ended up on this long trip throughout Southeast Asia for six months and ended up in Bali and saw a lot of performances there. It's very easy to see music there. Yeah. The, the, you can go to these tourist places, but it's also very easy once you just have your ear to the ground to find out about festivals. There's like temple festivals mm-hmm. every 210 days for each f- temple, and there's, you know, millions of these temples practically. Yeah. So you can really find out, and you can go see real, like, real stuff happening locally, mm-hmm. you know, not for tourists and whatever. So um, I love the music, and then I came back to New York, and I, a friend of mine told me that the Indonesian consulate here had a group, Balinese group. So I started playing with them and learned a bit, and then out of that I was um, went back there and just I would just go to a, kind of a small out-of-the-way place and start asking around, find out who some of the music... Everyone plays music there. That's the one thing. It's like... You know, you can't throw a rock without hitting some really good musicians. It's yeah, really yeah. cultural and, and societal. Right. So I I just found this guy who was one of the drummers in this pretty well known group called Gunung Sari, mm-hmm. and he didn't speak any English. So I had to kind of learn enough Indonesian, which isn't too hard, to just yeah. kind of make do with him. And I would I just lived there for a few months and would every day walk over and have a lesson. And you know, he never told me what he wanted to get paid, so I'd kind of ask around and then. Someone said, oh, well, you know, every two weeks, give them a, uh, you know, a carton of cigarettes, uh-huh. something like that. And right. so I did that. And then after two months, I kind of just came up with some amount of cash and gave it to him. And um, so I went back several times and kind of just worked with that guy. That's cool. And then in the meantime here, there was groups playing at the consulate. There was a really good group at Yale at the time. I was mm-hmm. commuting up there to play. So... I, I played that music for about 20 years mm-hmm. um, until finally it was just like it, it's pretty intense rehearsal time and yeah. it's like a whole day sometimes so having kids it was it just got to be too much in a right. way so I'd like to get back to it but yeah did you what was the music you were listening to outside of like traditional music there mm-hmm. I mean in that time what were you into um, I think that I was listening to a lot of music from around the world mostly so yeah. um like I was still am a huge obsessive about Fela Kuti and yeah. African music and um, James, James Brown, Tony Allen, um, King Sunny Ade. Mm-hmm. Seeing, I was seeing a lot of stuff like that that was yeah. kind of seemed like the most amazing music live. And on, so I was listening to a lot of that, not so much rock. So I kind of skipped over a bunch of years in terms of like indie music and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, craft work I'm completely obsessed with right um, did you like uh, like musicians like Zakir Hussein who were mm-hmm. you know percussive yeah 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 um, yeah I was I was kind of listening to stuff from all over the place and I was making music just by myself mm-hmm. just like endless tapes that you know were like outsider music in the sense that no one would ever hear it and yeah. still has it <laughs> yeah, yeah you know hours of that stuff so right. um and, uh, and I had also had a band at Purchase with um, like a kind of a psych band with um, Gregory Crutzen, the photographer, yeah, yeah. and this other guy, Steve Vitello, uh-huh. who's a sound artist now. Um, what was that like? That was it, was, it was good. It was Greg's songs, and they were really good, and we kind of recorded a little bit. Nothing ever came out, really. Um, we played a few times, you know. Yeah. I think we played with the Long Riders once or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't find. I found global music through kind of post rock because when I was getting mm-hmm. to that age and playing music, a lot of the bands in Chicago that I was interested in were listening to a lot of mm-hmm. you know, world right. music, right. whether it was Brazilian, whether it was you know dub or mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And it kind of once you open that door and yeah. you figure out all that stuff, no matter what instrument you play, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, there's all this yeah. stuff. I remember like when our band released. It was our first record, and and one of the reviews mentioned Derudi Column, mm-hmm. and I had never heard of uh-huh. them. And like this guitar player is clearly listening to Derudi Column, <laughs> and I'd never heard of them in my life, you know. Clearly, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, I guess I better listen to this, if, yeah, if I'm ripping them off. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, it sort uh-huh. of like opened up the door to all that kind of music, you know. Yeah, and which yeah. is still, right. you know, once you open it, you just. Go in there forever. Do you listen to, to music a lot when you're playing, or when oh, you're yeah, in yeah. the studio? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, because some of the titles of your pieces, I believe, are yeah, references to they music. Will, yeah, often. Right? Mm-hmm. That's cool. So it's 
I kind of listen to everything at this point, maybe except for I don't really listen to much opera or classical. Yeah, almost everything else. Maybe not contemporary country, but I like that old country a lot. Right. Yeah. Stuff like that. Western swing. Does that fall under the country umbrella? Yeah. Yeah. And Bob Wills is mm-hmm. good. You mm-hmm. know, and Speedy mm-hmm. West and Jimmy Bryant and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, I don't listen to opera. Mm-hmm. That might be one frontier of music that I just flat out don't listen mm-hmm. to. And musical theater. I don't listen to that either. Is that like is that a genre? musical? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that's true. I don't. I don't even go see musicals, or I don't yeah. go see a lot of theater for some yeah. reason. Yeah, there's like this suspension of disbelief issue that I, I uh-huh. don't know. But then there's I do see some. Like I've seen, I remember a long time ago going to see Stomp and being really mm-hmm. into that, mm-hmm. and like seeing mm-hmm. some music-based productions right. that right. I can get into. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't listen to a lot yeah. of dramatic I grew up stuff. going to a lot of stuff like that, a lot of dance performances. That was also very much a part of my folks' world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what was hugely influential to me was um, Charles Ludlam. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. He was a downtown theater guy. He had Charles Ludlam in the Theater of the Ridiculous, which um, was this crazy, highly um, punning, textual kind of work that was very was very queer theater mm-hmm. stuff a lot of a lot of drag roles and stuff like that um, and when I then grew up a little more and this was like when I was like 10 years old I'd see this stuff and it was completely mind-blowing and yeah. it was funny right and then when I later on saw it like John Waters films I was like oh I know where that comes yeah, from yeah. it slotted right in to kind of this this previous not, experience I had had. Not many people, I think, have that reference. You were, yeah. you were that was an advantage for you. you yeah, know yeah. What I mean? it's like, Most oh people, yeah, John fir- John Waters is really like professionalizing. Right, right. <laughs> Most people see it are like, what in the yeah, hell is fun, this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was a visitor when I was at Skowhegan. Oh, I saw that lecture then. He, actually, he was there yeah. that year, which is yeah, he was great, crazy. Yeah, yeah, it was good stuff. So you got out of college and then um, you moved to the city. You started making work. Yeah. And you were working for Red. I was working for Red. And you had a studio where you lived? I had, where I lived, yeah. yeah. So I think the other thing that was formative was that some, um, taking something from my parents' generation, like the example of de Kooning, let's say, who mm-hmm. my dad was actually very good friends with, mm-hmm. who didn't show really, t- had a gallery shelter. He was like 44 or something like that. And mixing that with experience I had of some Skowhegan people who were very young and became very hot very quickly on the East Village gallery scene yeah. of the late 80s and whatever. I was very kind of um, uh, adamant that I needed to kind of just make this work in isolation mm-hmm. for a while until I knew what I was doing because I felt like I was making work that was very hard to, like I say, describe in language, very hard to m- make a press release about or, dis- you know. Um, it felt to me like it was about things that were so intangible and personal mm-hmm. somehow just in terms of relating an attitude about painting that I felt like nah, I don't think anyone's going to kind of get this or it'd be mis- there have to be a lot of mistaken interpretations or something like that so do you feel like if you close the door for a long time and just work and work yeah. and work you'll it will develop into something that's self-explanatory and will have its own kind of strength and yes. you don't need to talk about it well I think what it is is and I think I still found that this is the way I work is that I am not going to kind of come up with a rationale for my paintings and then make them. Yeah. What I have to do is I have to kind of paint my way into the rationale and that the language that I can use now is kind of things that I would realize way after I've stopped working on something. I, when I started doing slide lectures, you know, a little later, I was like, I started realizing that I had a two-year lag about when I understood what I was doing than from when I did it. Right. And then slowly that cycle has probably shrunk a little bit more. Um, but I really have to kind of um, have the process lead the, into the content and not, you know, put the cart before the horse in a sense of, um, I mean, just, I, just being for myself, I feel like then I, what I fall into is an execution trap yeah. of kind of, illustration is the wrong word, but kind of in a way, you know, kind of executing and illustrating the concept and um, there's a lot of terrific art that I like that does that mm-hmm. but I know that when I do that I get into very stuck places yeah. very quickly and I get to I probably have the facility to do a pretty good job of it mm-hmm. but 
um, it never kind of gets past that for yeah. me. And so the way I have to work is um, making a lot of uh, kind of left brain mistakes and then getting to see what they are and having some sort of a bit of distance from that stuff that's happening there because I'm not really kind of owning it with the thinking process, the you know um, conceptual thinking, literal process, um, where it feels a little bit outside of me, but then clearly I did do it and I can own it at the same time. There's this weird combination of separation and ownership yeah. between how, how the work has to advance that way. Right. It seems like your work has this um, combination of kind of like there's, I can see almost like an interest in graphic novels or cartoons mm -hmm. and there's a playfulness in it. There's also this kind of materiality that seems like akin to the streets of the city where mm -hmm. it's like layering and things mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like not graffiti, but just like yeah. sort of stacked visual languages that are put on top of each other. Yeah. And there's, you seems like you would like to use things with a material history too. Mm -hmm. There's a, and there's also kind of a relationship to like commercial like packaging or like mm -hmm. movement of design or whatever. Is that kind of yeah? I mean, I, I I definitely acknowledge all that stuff. I wouldn't always say that it's terribly conscious. Like I feel like a lot of my work ends up being in the middle of a bunch of things. Yeah. And middle of the road is a pejorative, but in a way that's kind of where I feel like a lot. Of, so it's it feels like it walks a line. So right now I feel like my things have a bit of a kind of a Chicago quality to them in terms of an imagist influence um, they have a kind of thing that I'm realizing that is, seems to be very much unintentionally influenced by northwest coast Indian art which uh -huh. has to do with the quality of the the um, line that that stuff walks between representation and abstract design work in a way the combination of those things um, I'm kind of really interested. I did these cast paintings for so many years that were kind of about being somewhere between a painting and a sculpture. Yeah. Um, that they were on one level a representational sculpture of a canvas with an abstract painting on it. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of splitting the, you know, splitting the kind of the problem in half or something yeah. like that, walking on the, on the edge between things. Were these just stretched? Are these stretchers that are Yeah, these are, these are like after years and years of being resistant to the idea of oil on canvas, I'm kind of finally working there. How could you? <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I think that for, so for, I had a lot of years of work painting in enamel paint, especially yeah. because it was A, graphic, and B, that it had this, I could be very improvisational, and yet it had a kind of sharp pop quality to it. Mm -hmm. no matter how loose you were with yeah. your thinking in a way um, and so that influences the way I paint now for sure these my edge making is kind of all comes from that not from using oil paint even though these are oil paint um, but at some point I felt like I needed to not only work in that kind of paint and then I started making the supports out of cast plastic and I was like oh, the most perverse thing on this would be to paint an oil paint finally right. because there's this the supports were so kind of fake and um, kind of come from a world, uh, they have like a whiff of mass production. Cast yeah. plastic is our world, right? Our, right? our wider world, not the art world. Yeah. Um, so to use the thing that's so full of quality, which is exactly what I always hated about oil paint, on that cast plastic seemed to be really perverse and yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, and it seems like um, it seems like it's informed by some of the things that you, you paint on book covers or you paint yeah. on other things. So this is kind of yeah. an illusion of that, but it, it's hyper-realized, but it has a feel of like a found object in a way too. Right? Yeah, I think that I'm, I've always, way back to school, I've always kind of wanted to have this really strong physical connection to the thing that I'm painting on. So making these things out of cast plastic from a mold, even though they were um, all the same in a way, they felt very, very real to me by the fact that I made them. Yeah. So when I wanted to scale up, now um, and I just didn't really want to have these incredibly heavy cast things I decided that I should let myself paint on linen because it would be the exception that proves the rule a little bit but when I first started for a while I was like they're not weird enough yet they're not they don't have that weird quality perverse I love that word yeah that the cast things had so finally one little thing that I thought of was that I wanted to start cutting cutting the stretcher bars on the edges so that they're kind of wonky and funky and not about the perfection of a machined 
you know, stretcher bar. Right. Um, which I like that kind of lumpy, lumpen quality to the cast thing. So, um, so I started doing that, and that seemed interesting and kind of somewhere between a shaped canvas and a regular canvas. It's like 2.0, 2.5, kind of 2.5 um, D yeah. <laughs> or something. They're really interesting. I, you know, I've seen your work over the years, and I feel like this may be the as strong, if oh. not stronger than anything. So thank it's really you, exciting that they're coming together. And the scale is really nice of these thank two. You, I mean, I'll, I'll put photos up too yeah, so people sure. know what we're talking about. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah. I'm really excited about this stuff right now because, like I said, I have to I have to back my ass into whatever I'm doing without knowing it. And so I, I came up with this idea about six months ago that I would, because my way of painting is so improvisational, what if I did one half of a diptych that was done that way where I, I never know what the image is going to be. I'm finding my way into it. Yeah. And a lot of it is kind of about erasure and cutting cutting into shapes to kind of create a new thing. And I've, and I've been really interested in this idea of pareidolia, which is where we, um, it's like when you see the face in the clouds or mm -hmm. Jesus in the tortilla kind of yeah, thing, yeah. where we we make abstract random phenomenon, we figure it, let's say, yeah. in our brains because we want to so badly. Right. So that territory seemed like a great area, again, between things, which is between abstraction, which I love but have some skepticism about, mm -hmm. and figuration likewise, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so then I had this idea that and I've kind of been really interested in symmetry. I have a little app on my phone where you could put it in symmetry mode and make these little sketches uh -huh. that are just mirror all, all right away. So it's so strong, so it feels like that same kind of incredibly hooky quality that the pareidolia thing yeah. has where things start turning into facial-type structures mm -hmm. formally. Um, so I was thinking, like, if I do one half where I am kind of just improvising and finding the image, and then I find something and I stop and then I take the other half and I then just execute the mirror of that. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it'd be interesting, I don't know if anyone else would see it, but it felt like it'd be very interesting about the question of the intent between those two. Right. Because one, like I said, is like, it's developing image, like feeling your way along, and the other one is like, no, just, you know, reproduce it yeah. in a way. And then you stick them right next to each other and the image becomes so strong as a totality from that symmetry mm -hmm. um, uh, that, in a way, some of that, the difference between the two things is subsumed by that strength. Yeah. But it's still kind of there if you want to see it. And it's kind of a reflection of making art in general. It's like you see the world, yeah. you balance how much do I represent it, and then how much of it is a sort of reflection a representation of the reflection of how you see the world. You yeah, know? I, I and then think they it's, combine together. I, to right, create I think it's image. about us being living, active uh, things in process, yeah. and then you look in the mirror, and you're that is a two-dimensional image that looks just like you in your brain. Right, but it's flat. Yeah, and um, and and then, and now I'm completely uh, obsessed with uh, Rorschach yeah. and his life story. And um, not that these really look like Rorschach tests, but they but they're acting in that same way that I think that they're presenting this very strong image that is, you know, gives you an interpretive power as a viewer to kind of find your find your thing in it. Yeah. And I think things like that have always been interesting to me, not because I'm like all about giving the viewer the ability to do that but it all it really does is engage you longer yeah. I just want you to look at my things for more than two seconds and yeah, yeah. walk by that's the point right and these are really they're like humans mm -hmm. I mean we're symmetrical yeah and we're slightly off yeah I, I, th I think that I'm I've, for a long time last 10 years I've been really interested in this idea as, as canvases and paintings being some sort of personified thing. Mm -hmm. they're, they're masks and stand-ins and theatrical stand-ins for the idea of a personality. Yeah. Um, and that's why like, I think cutting the edges makes sense because I really don't like people who have their shit together and are supremely confident. I, right. find, them, I find that cold yeah. and uninteresting and unhuman in a way. Right. But when people have their... We all have so many foibles and mistakes in our life that are formative to us that are kind of beautiful in a way. Right. So I'm kind of I think I'm trying to represent that in the painting somehow that they're supposed to be 
you know, imperfect things. Like when you make when you take a blank canvas and you hang it on the wall before you've done anything, it's already moving in the direction of quality yeah. and um, authority, let's say. Yeah. Um, so I've always kind of felt like I wanted to kind of fuck that up a little bit and, right. and, um, may, and m- m- point out the fact that it's ridiculous and absurd. Yeah. You know, paintings are the most ridiculous thing ever. That's I, what's so great about them. I agree. And yeah. if they're dead, all the better, because then we get to do what we want with them. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like you you've, you can really speak about your work. But like I, <laughs> I, I hope I can. But like I said, I've only realized this after the fact. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I tend to finish paintings by not making them any, working on them anymore. Yeah. You know, rather than like knowing what I'm after. Right. So it's more about the suspension of the process than um, the finishing touches or something yeah. like that. Um, maybe not so much with these because in a way I'm executing that second half. It is a very A to B process. It's just that A is a very long, mysterious process and then B is like, bang. You're done. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't even think I like that part of it as much. Yeah, it's not as pleasurable somehow. No, the walk is more enjoyable. Yeah, the, the, the kind of meandering journey, discovering things is m- more interesting than the photo album of it right. in the end. But yeah, but they're kind of related. So yeah, um, well, where will people be able to see these paintings? I don't know. I don't know. Do you have anything coming up that you? <laughs> I I have things coming up that aren't about my paintings. I have a, a I'm the other thing I've done a couple times. I've done these cardboard pieces, mm-hmm. and one was about ten years ago that I showed in a gallery and that traveled around most recently until just this fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just did this biennial in India and did this new ver- a, a, a revisitation of that idea. And that piece is just over there now and is gonna be, I'm gonna be kind of remaking a lot of it uh, and showing it at Pierogi Gallery nice. on Suffolk Street in yeah. September. He moved to the city. Um, he moved to the city, and it's a beautiful space. Yeah. So, um, and then I'm doing this interesting curation of maybe you know this guy, Sean Thornton, Scowhegan connection. I don't know. So he went to Scowhegan. I'm not sure when, and then he um, was has been the baker there for the last 15 years. Every summer he goes up and does all the baking, mm-hmm. um, and so I've curated a show of his at the Q Foundation. Uh, nice. They asked me to do. You, you you know they ask you to do something where it's someone who hasn't really had any opportunity to show in New York or mm-hmm. much of anywhere else under known or something like that. Um, so I'm that opens on the 11th of April. Nice, which is the one year anniversary of this podcast. Wow, this great! Is on the 11th, terrific. Nice, yeah, <laughs> good timing. Yeah, and then in terms of the paintings, I don't know. I don't. Um, I kind of recently parted ways with my gallery on very good terms, mm-hmm. but kind of my prerogative. So I'm just kind of. The door's open? Door's open, and um, I've had some times where, sometimes it hasn't been my choice, but where something like that has happened where I've lost an opportunity, and it's always actually been really good. Yeah. Where you interrupt the cycle of getting familiar with, like, I know I'm making these things for a very particular space and a particular time. Right. And sometimes that very great opportunity is wonderful, but sometimes it's really nice to cut loose from that requirement yeah and feel you know reconnect with why you're making them for yourself first and then it makes them worthy to go out in the world right at that point definitely yeah I, I know a lot of people would love to see these so mm, I'm you. looking forward to it yeah thanks a lot for having me over today yeah pleasure. it's great to talk to you Podcast.com. The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. All other music was made by Lullatone, based out of Nagoya, Japan. 
Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Ryan Alfred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.